We'll take your Bibles and look at Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, this is the last message in our series on this subject of prayer, which began weeks ago in the first four verses of Luke 11. And then we jumped over to Colossians 1 and looked at prayer from the mouth of the Apostle Paul. And now we come back to chapter 11 to see how Jesus takes this study and puts an exclamation point on it. We want to acknowledge up front that faithfulness in our prayer life does not come easy. It is difficult to be faithful. It's difficult to live in such a way that James tells us an effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. We don't see ourselves as very effectual in our prayers because we don't see ourselves as very righteous. And I suppose from the human perspective, looking at Christ, we ought never to be satisfied with our growth and where we are. And nonetheless, it's hard to be faithful in prayer when, when effectual, fervent prayer is the standard. It's difficult to be steady. It's difficult to persevere in it. It's difficult for our prayers to be truth-rich. You know, we saw the pattern of prayer, and then you saw all these great themes working their way through the, the mature prayer life of a believer, and it's difficult to be truth-rich in your prayers to not become shallow and superficial and at times just selfish and petty. It's difficult to be genuine. It's also difficult to, to infuse our prayers with hope. This kind of maturity in our communion with God can often be elusive for the believer. And we could list the reasons, couldn't we? For one thing, praying, we talk to God and yet we can't see Him like we see one another. So that's a challenge because when we pray, we are praying what seems to be one-sided communication, one-sided communion. So we're forced to exercise our faith muscle, God's word, what he says, his promises, the Savior, the resurrection power of Christ, the provenness of God, the, the work of his Holy Spirit, the evidence in our lives. We're we're called upon to exercise faith in this God we cannot see, this Savior whom we love, though we do not see Him. That makes prayer difficult. Moreover, prayers are hindered by sin. So effective prayer urges us to greater levels of obedience, and sometimes we conclude, well, if I'm this weak, I might as well forget about it, and we distance ourselves from God in prayer because we just won't deal more faithfully with our sin. Prayer, furthermore, calls us to die to self. I mean, to pray in humble faith dependently means to pray according to God's will rather than the things that we want, rather than using God as some sort of stopgap or some sort of go-to emergency name in, in the spaces out there, and we just throw out that name and begin to throw our needs out there. There are times when our prayer life is calling us to die to self, and we just don't want to. We like prayer the way we like it. I'll tell you else, what else is, makes prayer difficult. Prayer is, is a long business. It happens between now and glory all the time. It is a part of the lives of God's people. It is to be the life pattern of Christians. Some theologians in history have rightly said that who you are in prayer is all you are and that's it. That is hard to swallow, knowing what we know about our communion with God. Prayer is a long business. 
It involves us every day of our Christian life and it involves making disciplined lists so that we remember each other's needs and then it involves entering into the pains of others let alone having our own pains to bring before God and, and it means trusting God while we wait on Him for an answer. And then there are deeper reasons why we struggle to be faithful in prayer. Because sometimes we ask the question, well, if God is sovereign, then how does it fit? Why do my prayers really matter? If God is carrying out the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11, and there is an ultimate will of God, and it always gets carried out, and it's perfect, and it will go from here throughout eternity, perfectly fulfilled as God ordained it, and there is nothing wrong with his ultimate will. It brings him maximum glory all the time throughout eternity because he can do no less. And we think, well, if that's the case, what is the effectiveness of a prayer anyway. We get confused. Sometimes we, we say, what about the fact that our prayers often seem to hit some sort of wall, some ceiling, a barrier of apparent silence. Our prayers rise to heaven and it seems that our heartfelt cries hit this wall and heaven seems closed to us. We can actually have seasons when our minds are plagued with questions like, does God even care about me at all? I've offered up these prayers for so long. Is he aware what I need this very hour? And when God doesn't answer me, when I've prayed repeatedly for a particular burden, that's when we need good theology for those circumstances and our prayer life in order to remain faithful. Good theology. You say, is it wrong to ask those questions? Well, it depends on what you're asking. Psalm 13, he asks that. How long, O Lord, will you remain silent? How long will you forget me? Clearly the psalmist doesn't believe God is forgetting him. He's just expressing in prayer, how long will you remain without answering my prayer regarding this circumstance or this difficulty? And then at the end of the psalm, a short psalm, he says, in reaffirming his knowledge of God, I know I will yet. I will yet be restored. I will yet see salvation. The psalmist expresses the question and yet puts his theology to work. The prophet Habakkuk was the same way when God used a pagan nation, a wicked people, to chasten and chastise his own people who were of his own possession. And the prophet asks, how can you do this? How long will you? I mean, right out of the gate in the prophecy, chapter 1, verse 2, how long are we going to have to wait? What's God's answer to the prophet? Make sure that your question doesn't trample my goodness. Make sure it doesn't encroach upon my goodness, my faithfulness, my character. You never want to do that. And secondly, Habakkuk, remember, I'm working out my will. It's always for your good. It's always for my glory. It's always best. And pagan nations aren't getting away with anything. I see it all. I'm, I know what I'm doing. Trust me. What Luke does here is he records what the Lord said about these very issues. And so we've seen the pattern of prayer. We've even seen Paul's passions in prayer. What we come to now in Luke, 5, Luke 11, 5 to 13, is the heart of God for prayer. What goes on in the heart of God when we pray? This is good theology proper, as Dan mentioned. As we close this study, we've seen the themes that should weave their way throughout our prayer. We've seen how we pray for one another in the Christian life, as Paul did. But what is going on in the heart of our God 
when we pray. Because if we can understand what goes on in his heart, then those moments where we've left the question at his feet will turn quickly into worship and settledness and faith and then even in his purposes the richness of his answers how he answers the way he answers we'll see it not miss it we'll discern it and not lose it we want to know what goes on in God's heart when his people take the pains of earth to the doors of heaven what does God think if you don't think rightly about God's heart you won't pray rightly Notice this text. Follow along as I read this simple parable and then this little Q&A that Jesus uses. Luke 11, verse 5. Then he said to them, this is the disciples whom he's been chatting with about prayer. He said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. From inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door's already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He'll not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who asked him. I love this section because Jesus is illustrating what God has in his heart when we pray. I need to know that. I need to know what my God thinks because my prayers can be everything from the sublime to the ridiculous. And my prayers can be uninformed and selfish and petty and my prayers can be deep and abiding and concerned and burdened and my prayers can be anxious and full of fear that's sinful and, and my prayers can be filled with faith and hope are you all over the map? I'm all over the map all the time I want to know what God thinks about me being all over the map What's going on in the heart of God? And that's what Jesus illustrates here. And He does so by giving a parable and then this little Q&A illustration which argues from the lesser to the greater. It's a very important argument that we'll see the Lord makes. In this, let's just first unpack the parable and then I'm going to give you four, four really what I like to call arteries in the heart of God that flow out from the heart of God regarding our prayer. In the parable you see this intriguing scenario. And it's about cultural norms. Uh, In a a parable, what happens is you outline a scenario that's familiar to the people around you to sort of set the scene and put some emphases there to make your final point. Parables aren't really about the details, but when you set a parable in motion, a parable has details in it everyone's familiar with, which have an emphasis, and in that emphasis it sets you up for the point, the punchline, the exclamation point the parable is going to give. And that's what Jesus does here. He uses a cultural norm of hosting people and the sort of the alleged urgency of such a thing. And you know what it's like. You 
some guest comes unannounced or something like that, uh, things go into motion. Their, their comfort is your overall goal. You want them to have the food they need. You want them to have the rest and relaxation they need. You might even provide some good conversation, a friendly environment, and, and some of the elements of being at home. You know, we even say that, make yourselves at home. When I travel around the world, people say that to me, make yourself at home. I'm like, really? Do you want me to make myself at home? Give me the remote, move away from the couch. <laughs> really? You want me to make myself that comfortable? But this is what we do. We're trying to say to someone, it's important to us to make sacrifices when we host you. Jesus sets that as the backdrop. But even cultural norms in our day are different from when you read the history of of the ancient world to a certain degree. They added formality to this aspect because it added respect. And the reason it added respect is because it added huge sacrifice. You could cause serious offense in the added formality of hosting someone if you didn't have what was needed because what was needed was hard to come by and when you were able to get it and supply it, it, it exuded greater respect and honor, a greater attentiveness to someone's needs. Life was harsh economically in those days. Travel was arduous and often dangerous. What immediately came into people's minds with a parable like this is that knowing someone in a town That was a lifeline on a journey, absolute lifeline. And so because it was more difficult to accommodate a guest in your home, let alone one unannounced, it carried more weight that you would make the sacrifices to meet their needs. And so Jesus sets that up as the basic scenario for the emphasis. What's interesting is what he emphasizes here. Notice he calls him a friend. Suppose one of you has a friend And notice, in the language of the friend in the parable, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine. I mean, this is the the point Jesus is going to emphasize because he's about to make a contrast. This is phylos, by the way. It It is not merely an acquaintance. It isn't someone you know in business. This is the normal word for a dear one, someone who's dear to you, someone who's a close friend. You might even sometimes translate it beloved. So he's going to a beloved friend because a beloved friend has come into town and he wants to host him respectfully. So let's just set the scenario. The urgent knocking comes. um, You're startled awake. Your mind is all murky. You're you're in a bit of a panic. You want to know what the racket is because your family has settled in. Probably around 9 o'clock. It's three hours. You're into rapid eye movement. This is serious exhaustion. You're in it. You're out. I love those first three hours, don't you? It's about all I get these days, but anyway. It's, it's a wonderful three hours, and they have it. They're in the middle of the scenario. Jesus knows the imagery this is going to invoke. So the guy comes to the door. The guy inside probably wants to know what the racket is. He's in a bit of a fog. Maybe even having some of those snap thoughts that we have. Man, I hope this is important. I mean, you immediately think this could be an emergency. What's happened to my friend? Is he hurt? Is someone in the family hurt? And you're in a bit of a panic. And so there's an urgency ramping up. But then your friend says, hey, by the way, a friend came by unannounced and I need some bread. Now, some of you might be thinking when you read the parable, why don't you just get up and give it to him? Well, even in a scenario like this, friends can be that way. You you don't mind inconveniencing me because we're dear friends, so I don't mind inconveniencing you by saying, go get it somewhere else. I mean, in the scenario, you're wondering, why wouldn't he just get up and give it to him? Because in, 
in those days, perhaps they were all crashed out. In those days, it's like, you're my close friend. You don't mind being importunate uh, at my door and yet inconveniencing me. So I think you're overreacting. You need bread? He'll be fine. He just got in unannounced. Tell him you don't have anything because it's a late hour. You want me to open the door, get my entire family up. Do you know what that does? This is the way friendships work. And Jesus is even emphasizing this. It's the way friendships work. We take each other for granted. We take advantage of one another. In fact, the closer you are, the more you have the potential for hurting each other. This is the way it is. And we forgive easily and quickly to those who are beloved to us because they're beloved. There's an inconvenience going on here. There's an indisposed situation. Someone is is coming in on someone's world who's a close friend and that person is saying, well, excuse me, I'm not sure that your need warrants the inconvenience. That's interesting. That's an interesting backdrop. So you have it going both ways. It's a two-edged sword. We're comfortable taking one another for granted. We're also less afraid to say, no, no, your, your need doesn't warrant the inconvenience. I don't want to hear it. So Jesus sets up really not a parallel per se with persistence, although that's here, but first he sets up a contrast between friends who are close and what he's, what he's going to illustrate here about God, what he's going to tell us about God when we come, all hours of the day and night, inconvenient, when the need doesn't warrant how many times we've come or the way we've come. The point Jesus is going to make is that God has a heart that's different than even your closest friends who, who really, when you take advantage of them, they, they don't like it, even your closest friends. That's not how God is. Notice verse 7. From inside he shall answer and say, do not bother me. <laughs> the door's already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I think the issue here is really about about what he's asking for. He asked for three loaves. He really wants to put on a respectful display. But his friend inside the house, in the illustration, is he's not into it. You, you know, just, just make an excuse. Find a way. I mean, really? For bread? You did this at midnight? Notice Jesus' point in verse 8 that sets up the contrast. I tell you. That's a formal beginning, by the way. Listen to this. I'm telling you even though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend. And that's, that's the verb on account of. So, uh, or the, the preposition on account of. He's basically saying even though he won't get up because he's a friend whom, whom he's willing to say no to, and he won't get up because he's not compelled enough by a close friendship, even though that's the case, notice what humans do. Yet because of his persistence, Even a friend who's already been inconvenienced and has already told him once to go away. Even a friend, because of persistence, will eventually get up and give him as much as he needs. Beloved, I don't believe this sets up a parallel. We don't have to badger God. We don't have to go before God and badger him into a response like the old gods of Baal whom Elijah mocked in 1 Kings. I believe he's setting up a contrast here. Look, God doesn't act like even your closest friends who at times get tired of your requests and your inconveniences and your overreaching and your need and your overreactions. Even a close friend will feel taken for granted and will react with ignoring you or telling you to go away. But not 
God, notice verse 9, I say to you, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it'll be opened. The verbs are in the, the continuing sort of motion here, the present tense. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Why? Because you have to badger God? No, but be, he loves it. He loves to hear it. Your close friend doesn't always like to hear it. And eventually, if you're persistent enough, will finally say, okay, okay, okay. Your close friend doesn't even want to hear it sometimes, not God. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Why? God loves to hear it. And so there is the first artery flowing from the heart of God. God loves to hear from us. No amount of prayer, no time of night, no burden you bring can be brought at, in some way that's going to make him hesitate. Ever. You come any hour for any burden or any need without hesitation. He absolutely loves it. And Jesus makes it plain with this parable. You cannot inconvenience God. You cannot come at, a, at an hour when he isn't ready. You cannot come with a need that is overblown that he will not listen to and then meet your need as you need. And notice the friend will give him anything he needs. He'll meet the whole need with just persistence. The point here isn't that your persistence moves the hand of God. The point here is your persistence is what he loves. It's what he loves. You say, but doesn't that also mean that this is, will move the hand of God? Well, that is the second artery flowing from this. God desires to draw out our pers- persistence. God desires to draw out our persistence. Notice verse 10. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Why does God wait so long sometimes? Because he wants to draw out our persistence. Why? Because in the waiting and in the praying, he's accomplishing things for his glory and your good that can be accomplished no other way. And sometimes we, we just put it out of our mind that he's going to wait a long time and accomplish a lot of wonderful things in that process. Not at all. In fact, if God has ever answered your prayer the way you wanted, as early as you wanted or before, you sometimes can become so comfortable with that that when he does make us wait, we think he's been unjust. We think then we have to badger God. No, you don't. He is pulling you into persistence. That is the point of the contrast. A friend, persistence itself, will badger a friend till he'll finally, as a friend, when you've, when you've been inconvenient, he'll still give you what you need. God isn't like that. God says, keep on asking because he will give. Keep on seeking because you will find. Keep on knocking. He will open it. But why does he wait so long? Because he wants your persistence. In the persistence, he does all kinds of things in you, all kinds of things in people, all kinds of things in your circumstances. You may see five of them. He's doing thousands of other things. He wants you to be persistent, so he makes us wait. He wants us close. 19th century England, George Mueller, he prayed all the time, and in one particular account he prayed for two friends he began praying for them when he was young and he prayed that they might be converted 
and you're reading the account and it's all sweet and you expect to go around the corner a couple of years and George Mueller prayed for those two friends for 60 years. Six decades. Wow. Why would God wait that long? It's George Mueller. I mean, he loves the Lord. <laughs> he prays all the time. Yeah, and, and I get to read that he prayed for 60 years. That wouldn't happen if God had answered it earlier. That encourages you and me to hear the account. Don't, doesn't the prayer of the Apostle Paul in Colossians encourage you? Doesn't the prayer that you've offered up to God about that loved one or that disease or that job or those issues, when God draws out your persistence, he makes you wait to pull you in close, isn't it doing a work in you and that work's going to have value in someone else's Christian life? Of course. It changes your life. It changes the way you treat the answer when you finally see the answer. Over 60 years, George Mueller prayed for those two young men, both of which were converted within a year of their death. Is that worth it? You think George Mueller's going to get to heaven and say, man, Lord, I know they're here and all, <laughs> but wow, I had to wait. That was frustrating. I mean, I questioned your goodness that whole time. What was that all about? It felt like I was badgering you. I mean... Look, I, I was doing all this work in you and doing all this work in others through you and I was pulling you into persistence and I wanted you to persist to be close to me and I was accomplishing things as you were close to me and I was humbling you and making you more effective in all these other arenas and look at all these other souls that are here and oh, by the way, yes, I saved the two that you prayed for. Man, our theology is so bad. He loves to hear you come anytime. Nothing is inconvenient, ever. And he yet will tell you to wait or make you wait to draw your persistence in because in your persistence he is doing things while you believe his promise. I've prayed for some things for a long time. And uh, he doesn't have to answer. I know he still promises to give. He still promises to open. He still promises to uh, help me find. He's always answering prayer for his glory and my good. So whether or not I see it answered the way I want, as we'll talk about in a minute, whether it happens exactly as I thought it would, it matters little. The promise is still true. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Because he will, he will, he will, as he chooses but when you're praying, and you're praying for a long period of time, you just don't know the specialness, the depth, the profound nature of what it's going to be like when he does choose to answer the way he chooses to answer. You don't see it. And so in the waiting, he's growing your faith so that if and when he is going to give you the answer that you asked for the way he wanted to give it, there's all that depth there underneath it and behind it that you would have never seen. I've prayed for family members. Some of you know three sweet family members. My wife and I prayed for 30 years. And, and the gospel was rejected for a lot of those years. Until just about seven years ago, the Lord saved one of them. <laughs> my heart was changed when that happened. Of course, I prayed for my kids too, and they were saved a little bit earlier than that, but... 
other relatives haven't been. I trust God. I trust the promise is true. What is he doing? He's pulling me close. He's making me persistent. And when he answers, the way he answers, my whole entire heart changes. My whole entire life changes. My theology is enriched and deepened. Don't, don't complain against God for making you wait. It's in your persisting that he draws you close in ways you wouldn't have otherwise. I know for a fact that had he answered some of my prayers right away, I would have been like Agar in Proverbs 30. I would have been tempted to forget my God. How do I know that? Because I, for, I forgot all the time. I have a tendency to forget him tomorrow and not pray to him faithfully. He's not going to give you everything you pray for right now. Why? You will abuse it. He loves you. He wants to grow you. Third artery. The first is that he loves to hear our prayers. The second is he pulls us into persistence because he wants you close. The third is God, God longs to give what we ask. Notice verse 10. Everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. To him who knocks, it will be opened. These are great terms piled on one another. The asking just speaks of the request itself. We could say the seeking is more like the constant pleading. And we might even go one step further and say the knocking is, is sort of that without hesitation aspect. Like the door in the picture of the, parallel, uh, the parable. So you're always asking in the Christian life. You're always bringing it again and repeating it and doing it a different way and with a different heart and a more mature season of life. You're bringing that request again and then you're always doing it without hesitation. You're always knocking. Lord, I know you're going to give. I know you're going to help me find and I know you're going to open. In your timing, your way, I know what you're going to do because you've said you will do it because you long to give what we ask. Now, let's be honest. There are things that make our asking immature. So sometimes the Bible is very clear that we don't ask according to the will of God. We don't. Now, if I ask for someone's salvation, you say, how's that not according to the will of God? I've been asking you, Lord, to save my loved one, and you, don't you want to save? Don't, that, that's according to your will, isn't it? Yeah, there's a lot of other things going on there. Number one, you have to pray according to whatever will glorify Him. That has to be on your heart, because He doesn't do anything that isn't for His maximum display of glory and for our maximum good in eternity. Right? He works all things against, uh, after the counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1, for the praise of his glory. And look, where God is glorified at a maximum level, that is our good. Here and in eternity. So you've got to pray that. Yes, salvation of your loved ones is a good thing to pray. Yes, it aligns with God's general purpose to save. But since you don't know what his ultimate will is, you lay it before God knowing that he loves to save. But you must also say, Lord... It, in your glory for our good I don't know what your purposes are I just know they're always good and they're always for the highest magnification of your glory you have to pray that you also can't come to God with unconfessed sin Psalm 66, 18 if you regard iniquity in your heart in other words if you hold it there and unconfessed there's no communication line for the Christian, even the Christian who has unconfessed sin in your heart, there's an intimacy that should be there but isn't because there's something between you and your walk with the Lord and you've got to go before the Lord and make that right. You can't just rush into God's presence with your needs and 
And yet over here, he's calling you by his spirit to repent of rebellion and you won't do it. He's going to challenge you on that. He's not going to give you what you want, even in his gracious mercy when he's determined to make you like his son. Sometimes it's just self-will. I'm praying this, Lord. It's a good prayer. It's a, it's a great prayer. It's prayers that others have prayed in the Bible. That's what I'm praying. It's according to your will. And then he, he answers it, but it isn't the way you wanted. You asked for that infirmity to be taken away from you. But the Lord changed the infirmity and added a second one. That's, that's not what I was asking. I'm asking for relief. You didn't give me relief. No, but I gave you reform. I'm giving you what you need to make you like Christ. So there's some self-will in there. Lord, I want, it, I want it answered my way according to my will because that's what I'm after. Well, you, you prayed, but your will is what's most important to you and I need to shape you around my will. That leads, of course, to what James 4 says about the idolatry of our prayer. Sometimes you're not going to get what you ask for because... In your heart of hearts, when you pray to God for whatever it is you're asking Him for, sometimes all you want it for is yourself, your own pleasures, your own self-worship. Lord, give me that job. Really? You just want to be exalted. And the last job that you have carried, you didn't carry for Him or for His glory. So He's got to wean you from yourself. Lord, take away that trial wrong to go before God and say, Lord, I do think I need relief, but if you don't follow that up like Paul with your grace is sufficient, I'll almost gladly rejoice in my afflictions. If you don't follow it up with that, you want to spend the prayer and the answer on your own pleasures. And James says, that's, that's friendship with the world. The world's like that. Gimme, gimme, gimme. I take, I take. I just take all that this creation offers and I thumb my nose at the God who made it all. That's the world. Christians should not be like that in our prayer life. I want to pray this and you didn't answer me. It just just grips us. This so plagues our hearts. Sometimes God longs to give to us all the time, but sometimes we hinder it. And then sometimes we have wrong thoughts about God's sovereignty. Well, he's going to do what he's going to do anyway. Have you ever heard that? Somebody said, well, he's, going to, he's sovereign. He's going to do what he's going to do. Why do I have to pray for it? You're misunderstanding how God works his sovereign will. He has a sovereign will. It's an ultimate will. It will always be carried out, cannot be thwarted, Daniel 4, 32 to 35. He works it out according to the counsel of his will. Everything in the world works in his sovereign plan. He's ordained it all. And yet the means by which he's ordained all things are the free human choices of, of these moral agents he made that he created. You say, how does he do that? I don't know. He doesn't tell us how he does it. But he's powerful enough to do it and he says that's how it happens. Everything you do, everything you pray or don't pray is within the power and ordination of his will. But here's the joy of it. While he's ordained the outcome that that you are praying for, he's ordained your praise, your prayers as the means to get to that outcome. You say, well, does that mean he wouldn't have done it had I not prayed? It's, it's an unimportant question. It's moot. He did use your prayers to do it. That's all that matters. Your prayers were the unfolding plan of his sovereign work in carrying out his will. You don't thwart his will. You just get to be in the ordination of it, the 
the plan of it, the work of it, that is rich. God's ordained Jerry Rag to pray for some things, and he answers those prayers because I prayed. That's what he says. How does he do that? He enters into our world. He's near to it. He works within it, carrying out his ultimate ordained will by these means of our involvement and our prayers. He promises that right here. Ask and it will be done. To us it looks contingent. To God it is part of his plan. So he loves to give, but you don't want to just back off and say, well, if he's sovereign, I don't have to pray anything. No, pray all the more. Because when you get at the end of something you've prayed and God has done something and answered it according to your prayers, you will know, wow, the specific way God listened to my prayer and he'd always planned for me to be an instrument to carry out that prayer. With regard to family members I'd prayed for, I didn't have to pray. What if I'd never prayed? Would those family members be sitting here in Christ today? The question is moot. It makes no sense. I did pray. God ordained that I'd pray. And he saved them according to those wonderful prayers. Because he moves at the prayers of his people. Because he'd ordained that our prayers would be a part of that. How much richer then is my heart knowing that? So we pray all the more because he has ordained our prayers as part of it. I love that. Finally, the fourth artery. First of all, God loves to hear it. Second, he's, he makes you wait because he's drawing persistence out of you so that you're close to him and he's doing things in your persistence that you cannot see but they're for his glory and your good and he longs to give what we ask so he says, keep on doing it and I will give. That's his promise. And notice this little Q&A. Verse 11, Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He'll not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he'll not give him a scorpion, will he? I mean, the imagery is just barbaric even to a pagan dad, and that's the point. Look, if a pagan father, someone who doesn't know the Holy Spirit, has no supernatural power, just natural proclivity to care for children... If he can look at an illustration like that and see the barbaric nature of a small child in need asking for food and a father giving what will kill him, if a pagan father can see the barbaric nature of that and give his children good things, your heavenly father is far, 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 far greater. Notice verse 13. If you then being evil... In other words, if you're natural, if you're corrupt, and you still know how to be a normal dad with a normal child, somebody who abandons that, we we make them criminals. They're criminals. They're neglectful. They're sinners. They're wicked. They're given over to that. And, And we set them aside in society. We don't model society after that. We model society after what is natural to a parent, particularly a dad. A child asking for food, he asks for a fish. Come on, let's go fishing. That's what a dad does. Oh, you're asking for protein? I'm not going to give you a scorpion. I know that will sting you and kill you. I'd never do that. In fact, if a scorpion touches you, I'll crush it into a million pieces. That's what a dad does. What is the artery here? Here it is. God works for our spiritual strength. In everything, he is working for your strengthening. He's not trying to crush 
you know, your smoldering wick. He's not trying to break your bent reed. Notice verse 13. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father, your Father from heaven literally, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Listen, when the Lord left they, they prayed that God would fulfill His promise to bring the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came. God gave Him. For ancient time immemorial, they prayed for a Messiah. They waited and waited and waited for generations. The Messiah came. The Messiah died. The Messiah rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. The Spirit came just as God had promised, just as they'd prayed. And now every believer possesses the Holy Spirit And the Spirit empowers us in all that we need in life as we saw last week. So how much more, when you go to God, how much more? Because you're His child and He knows you. How much more will He not do everything He can when you bring your request? Everything in His power, which is limitless, it is infinite, to bring spiritual strength by the power of His Spirit to you from now through eternity. How much more will he, your heavenly father, do that? That is why we pray. That's the heart of God when we pray. He wants to hear it. He pulls us in and makes us wait so we're persistent because he's accomplishing things through our persistence. He comes and says, I want to give it to you. I long to give you what you're asking for. I'm just going to do it in a way that is going to be maximally strengthening to you so sure I might tweak the plan sure I might tweak the answer sure it might come to you in ways you didn't think sure it might come to you over a period of time you didn't imagine but it will always be for your strength always for maximum glory for God and always for your best that's his heart that's his heart I don't know what you pray for and Sure, it's no different than me. I'm sure that it's very, very challenging to imagine that anybody else has problems more difficult than you. These are common to man, 1 Corinthians says. So your prayers must be common. They must be like mine. All over the map sometimes. What's the heart of God when my prayer life is all over the map? This is the heart of God. He is going to answer some of my prayers right away. And uh, I don't know why he does that. He, he wants to. It's for his glory. But given the amount of times I would be tempted to forget him and not pray, you would think he would say, look, your scorecard's not that great. You're going to be waiting a long time for your prayers to be answered, pal. But that's not our God. He wants us to come. He loves that we come. First Peter 5, 7 casting all your anxieties on him. How many anxieties do you have per day? All of them. I want them all, he says. Bring them all. Bring them regularly, bring them all, unhindered, without hesitation. And by the way, I'm going to make you wait for the answer because I want you to come tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And every time you come, I'm accomplishing something in your life through it that I want to accomplish. I'm making things happen. In you and through you and for all your life, I'm going to influence people through your waiting and your persistence because I'm growing you and that's going to make you useful in ways that when we get to heaven, you're going to see the tentacles of it and absolutely rejoice in ways you could never have imagined. 
And while you were complaining that you had to wait 30, 40 years for some prayer to be answered, for some cure for your illness, some loved one to get saved, God was accomplishing things you could have never fathomed. You must believe the promise. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Keep on petitioning. Keep on seeking new ways to express your anxieties and keep on doing it without hesitation. For he who asks receives. And he who keeps on seeking finds. He who keeps on knocking, it, it gets opened. However it gets opened. For his glory, for your good. However it gets opened. You don't stop asking. Because he loves it. And he longs to answer it and give And he does so with your spiritual strength in his heart at the most perfect level. Not a natural earthly level like earthly fathers. But you ask for something, he doesn't just meet one for one. He goes abundant, exceeding, beyond all you can ask or think, Ephesians 3.20. According to the power that works within us mightily, how will he not then give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And in our New Covenant era, how will He not give the power of the Holy Spirit the way you need? The Spirit's answer to your prayer as is best. Our problem is our theology isn't that great. And we gotta gotta ask His forgiveness for that. We do not pray with good theology in mind. And Jesus says, look, here's the pattern. Paul in Colossians 1 said, here's what we're passionate about in each other's lives. Jesus finishes off the pattern by saying, here's the heart of your God, your Father, when you pray. Bow with me. Lord, this is amazing, amazing. It's absolutely astounding that you would even care about these things. It is all of grace. And we do not know as we ought to know. We don't believe as we ought to believe. We wait five days and we complain. We wait an hour and we complain. And you sometimes answer within the hour. Sometimes you answer in the moment. And we still complain. That's not the answer we wanted. And then when we wait, because you've called us to wait and we're drawn to persistence, we stop persisting. Forgive us for this, Lord. And when we do persist, we, we believe it was for naught, as if we had to badger you. You're not interested in foolish badgering You're drawing us close to you and humbling us and growing us for greater usefulness. How pathetic we can be. Please forgive us. Make our prayer life more faithful and hope-filled. Pour out your Spirit's grace within us so powerfully that we're settled in whatever you bring, however you answer. Keep us from the folly of making demands upon you. The presumption of assuming that our articulated prayers 
obligate you exactly as we've asked it. Our prayers soften us and align us with your purposes. Teach us to love you and teach us your love for us. That's what we want to learn, Lord. Please forgive us for being all over the map in ways that we don't have to be. Thank you for giving us these arteries that flow from your heart toward prayer, toward our prayers. How close you you are to us, how much we now know your closeness, your interest, your passion to give. Help us to draw near to you and to believe and trust these promises, no matter the outcome. For we know you're always answering in your way, in your time. Mature us in these things for the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.